Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. My name is Andrew Martin. I'm the director for our youth ministry here at Christ the King. And I want to welcome you as we continue our study of 1 Peter. During this study, we've been exploring what does it look like to live as exiles, to live in a place that is not our home. And this morning, we're going to look at a particular aspect of being exiles. We're going to look at what's it look like to live as people who live in a place that's not our home and in many ways is hostile to our Christian beliefs, is hostile to our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a theme throughout the New Testament that we will face hostility, we will face suffering, we will face persecution because we follow in Jesus Christ. And so this passage this morning is going to help teach us how as Christians do we lean into this suffering? How do we handle suffering that we receive because we follow in Jesus? So let's read this morning together in chapter 4, beginning with verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us your truth. Thank you for reminding us that we are exiles in this world that the forces of evil are arrayed against you, King Jesus, and when we follow you, we will, we will face suffering. We will be persecuted. But Lord, thank you that you don't leave us alone in that condition, but you teach us not only how to lean into these sufferings, how to respond to them, but you also teach us where we will find the strength to endure them and to bring you glory. We pray that by your Spirit, you would teach us those things this morning, shape our hearts so that we can follow you faithfully. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, most of us are familiar with the idea of, of boot camp, of military basic training. We've seen the war movies where there are drill instructors going ballistic on new recruits, or perhaps we've seen family members and friends come back with all sorts of exciting adventures from boot camp and, and the ways that they were treated so well there. Or perhaps we ourselves have gone through this training. We've, we've experienced it ourselves. And when we think about military boot camp, when we think about basic training, there's a particular expectation that comes into our minds. We expect that the recruits are going to go through all kinds of trials. They're going to be pushed physically. They're going to be pushed mentally. They're going to be pushed socially. In another word, suffering is imminent. And this was certainly my own experience going through training. And so you can imagine my surprise when I was told the following story. As I was going through training, 
They told us about a young recruit who had a, arrived at the Naval Academy for our, for our basic training for plebe summer. And the first day was just chaos. They call it indoctrination day, but it's actually more like crazy day. You know, there's all sorts of, you know, madness going along. And as this recruit was surrounded by this chaos that was swirling around them, as they're being yelled at to go over here and do push-ups over here and go over here and do this over here and you can't do anything right, it's just mounting and you could see their distress just getting more and more and more on the surface. And finally, they, they just couldn't take it anymore and, and they raised their hand and the instructor looked at them and said, what do you want? And they said, why are you yelling at us? Why are you treating us this way? And it was, it was absolutely an absurd question because this is the Naval Academy. It's basic training. What would you expect? Well, you see, what had happened was this was not what they had expected. You see, they had arrived thinking that this was not a military institution. I don't know how they came to that conclusion. The name makes it pretty clear. But that was their, that was why they were surprised. That was why they thought it was very strange that on the first day of school, they should be suffering in this way. Now, you know, it's easy for us to, to laugh and shake our heads and, you know, disbelief. And in, in ways, it kind of makes sense. But our own laughter gets put in check when we realize that in many ways, we're a lot like this new recruit. Because like this new recruit, when we face suffering because we follow Jesus, like them, we often don't know how to handle it. We don't know what to do with the suffering that we experience. And so what we see here is that the gospel transforms us. It teaches us and it strengthens us in ways to respond to the suffering that we will experience because we follow Jesus. Now, with this opening story, I do want to take a minute and kind of set the tone for us here. Because we, we laughed at the story, but we might also kind of be bracing ourselves a little bit, thinking, oh, great. You know, here's this, this military guy up here. He's going to give us a speech straight out of a war movie about how we've got to toughen up. And, you know, when, when we experience suffering, we just got to gut it out, you know. But, but that's not the tone that Peter takes with us here. Look in verse 12. Look at the very first word he uses, beloved. You know, I was called a lot of things in the military. I guarantee you, beloved was not one of them. But that's what Peter says here. He calls us beloved. He takes us out of boot camp mode. He puts us in the family mode. He doesn't come at us like a drill instructor who's going to berate us and break us down. No, he, he comes at us as a tender pastor who cares about us, who loves us. And he says, I'm going to teach you some difficult things today. It's not going to be easy to hear these things. But I want you to remember who you are. I want you to remember you are beloved. Why? Because you are a child of God who is deeply loved and cared for by your Father. And I want us to keep that front and center this morning as we look at how the gospel shapes us to respond to Christian suffering. And the first thing we see is that the expectation for Christian suffering is something that we should expect. Look in verse 12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And he grounds this, he grounds this command in the works of Christ. Because you see, look in verse 13. He says, don't be surprised, but rejoice when, when you share Christ's sufferings. You see, this is a key theme throughout the New Testament, as we said earlier. 
it flows from the teaching of Jesus himself. In the, in the Gospel of Matthew, he told his disciples, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to take up your cross. It's going to be hard. Later in John, he says, in this world, if you're one of my followers, you will have trouble. I promise you. And if it's, if it's still not clear for us, Paul in, in the uh, book of 2 Timothy, he says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You will be persecuted. Not some of us, all of us. And you know, as Christians, for, for many of us, we, we've heard these verses many times in our lives, but we need to hear them again and again. Because when we examine our culture, we begin to see how easy it is to forget that as followers of Jesus, we're going to suffer. Take the last, last few weeks. Last uh, week, uh, throughout our nation, we observed the midterm elections. And for the weeks leading up to that, the center of attention were all of the candidates. And everyone was scrambling to, to show how great their candidate was and why they should be the ones in office. And when we look under the surface of, well, why did we care so much about who was going to be in office, we realize part of it was we wanted someone who would be in office who would clear our path of all suffering to make way for the American dream. In other words, we wanted a leader who would clear suffering out of the way so that we could have life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. That's the kind of leader we want. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. It's actually a good thing to have leaders in office who are going to promote human flourishing in our communities. It's a very good thing. And Christianity is not a masochistic religion that goes out and seeks suffering. No, we're told in other places, we're actually to seek peace. We're, we're to, to strive to live quiet lives. We're not looking for it. At the same time, however, we, we have to wrestle with the tension that ultimately, while we do seek good leaders in public office, at the end of the day, our ultimate leader who we're called to follow, Jesus, he's told us that if we follow him, we're going to suffer. We're going to suffer. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, do we become so focused in our land on electing a leader who will clear all suffering out of our lives that we forget this truth? And what about in other areas, you know, aside from public office? Are we so focused on avoiding suffering in other areas of our lives that we forget that, that we are going to suffer? We're not going to have a 100% suffering-free life if we follow Jesus. And are we preparing our children for this truth? Are we preparing them to grow up and live this way and, and to raise our grandchildren and our great-great-grandchildren to live in this way? And I say that because, you know, today in our land, physical suffering for Jesus is pretty low. In places, it's, exact, it's completely non-existent in parts of, of, of the United States today. But I got to tell you, as, as a student of history, one thing that's really stood out to me is that social realities, social landscapes, they can change, and they can change at an alarming rate of speed. So we've got to ask ourselves the question, what are our supreme goals? Are we preparing ourselves, are we preparing our children to seek success in the eyes of the world? Is that our supreme goal? Or, while we do strive for peace, are we preparing them to follow Jesus as the ultimate supreme goal? Are we preparing ourselves to follow Jesus no matter what kind of suffering we may endure, whether it's physical suffering tomorrow 
or verbal ridicule and embarrassment and social disgrace today. And Peter reminds us of, of the reality that we're going to suffer for Jesus. But then he, he also teaches us how we're going to respond to that suffering. It's one thing to, to suffer, but how do we lean into it? That's the second thing he's going to teach us. But before we do, we, we've got to respond to a, a caveat that, that Peter gives us here. Look in verse 15 with me. He says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Basically, what Peter's saying is, I want you to use biblical discernment. I want you to be careful about how you, you view your suffering. Because some of us, we might be tempted to, in certain situations to say something like this. I am a Christian and I am suffering. Therefore, I must be suffering because I am a Christian. And what Peter is saying here, for my, for my science and math people, he's saying, that's not good Christian math. That does not compute. Because what he's saying is, you might suffer for the things that are listed here in this verse, but you're not suffering because you're following your Savior. You're suffering because you're following your own sinful desires. He's like, and I want you to, to remember the difference. Because in a minute, he's going to say the first response that we have to Christian suffering is to rejoice. That's how we respond for following our Savior. But if you're suffering because you're following your own sinful desires, rejoicing is not the response. It's repentance. Some of us are suffering and we need to examine why are we suffering? Is it because we're following Jesus? Or is it because of things like this in verse 15? And should my first response be to repent instead? It's an important distinction and when we have that on our radar, when we've got that, we're on the lookout for that pitfall, then we're ready to move into the response to Christian suffering, to, to the response for suffering because we're following our Savior. And we see that the first thing is to rejoice. I mean, look at in verse 12. He says, do not be surprised, but in verse 13, but rejoice. And again, it, it's not a masochistic joy. We're not rejoicing because of the suffering itself. That's not it. We know that there's a proper place for grief and for tears in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of suffering. You know, Paul teaches us to weep with those who weep. And at the same time, for Christians, grief and joy, hope and mourning, they go together. They always go together. And that's what we're seeing here. Look in verse 13. He says, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. When his glory is revealed, he's talking about when Jesus comes back, when Jesus returns in victory. That's when Jesus' glory will be revealed. And when we talk about Jesus' return, his glory being revealed in the Bible, it, it means a lot. It means the end of all suffering for Christians. It means that all of the tears are going to be wiped away from our eyes that we've shed in the midst of our suffering for him. It means that we're going to share paradise, and eternal bliss with him forever. That's why we can rejoice, because of the hope that we have when Jesus returns. And this joy is so much different. This hope is so much different than the hope that is experienced in our own society. You see, we're a pain-averse culture. We are. And there's, you know, there's some things that are good about that, that are really good about that. And at the same time, we will allow for pain and suffering in our lives if we think it'll give us hope for something better in the future. In the military, 
One of their slogans is, if you sweat more in peace, you'll bleed less in war. Suffer now so you don't have to suffer as much later. Or in business, we might say, hey, put your nose to the grindstone today so that you can rest and enjoy prosperity tomorrow. We will allow for, for pain, for suffering, if it gives us some kind of hope. But we've got to see that those are only aspirations. Those are only aspirations for glory at the end of the road. Because you can train all you want in the military, you still might lose your life. You can work the night shift for years and years and years in the business world, you still might lose your job. There's hope, but it's not guaranteed. But that's the difference between our hope as Christians and the hope that's experienced in the rest of the world. Because you see, with Jesus, it is a 100% promise and a 100% guarantee that when you suffer for Jesus, you will also share in his glory when he returns. It's uncontested. And why? What gives us this, this right to expect that we should rejoice when Jesus returns? Well, we see that it's because we belong to Jesus. Look in verse 14. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. In other words, he's saying, if you suffer because you follow Jesus, you can rejoice and take hope because that means you belong to Jesus. And that's what he's talking about in verse 12. When he talks about the fiery trials, when they come upon you to test you, that's what he means by those testing. That testing is proving that your faith in Jesus is genuine. That you belong to him. And it also helps us understand verses 17 through 18, which I'm going to be honest with you, kind of, I wrestled through those. But look there with me. It says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? I want to say two things about those, about those verses. The first is judgment. When he talks about judgment, the first thought that may come to some of our minds is the idea of punishment. Oh, God's, God's punishing everybody and he's punishing his people first. But, but that's, not, that's not what this passage is talking about. You see, Jesus on the cross, he bore our punishment. He took the punishment for us. We will not be punished for our sins because Jesus took that on him. Rather, when he says the word judgment, he's talking about a judge who is making a determination. And what he's saying is that through these persecutions, God is working to reveal who truly belongs to Christ and who does not. That's what he means by judgment. And this actually gives us a lot of hope. Because it shows that as we endure through him, it's because we belong to him. And the second thing, verse 18, he says, the righteous is scarcely saved. And again, that's not saying like, oh, you're, you're just barely saved as a Christian. It's God clinches victory in saving you by like the narrowest of margins. No, what he's saying is when he says scarcely, he means salvation's difficult. You know, Jesus paid a great price for us on the cross. And he calls us into a life of following him. He calls us into salvation that means walking a very difficult road. It's going to be hard. Our salvation is secure in Jesus, and it's hard. Because we're going to suffer. And so what he's doing there is he's saying, he's not only show that you belong to Jesus, but he's making a comparison. I mean, look what he says. You know, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? He's saying, not only do you belong to Jesus, but I also want you to keep things in perspective because you're going to suffer now as you follow him, 
But I got to tell you, it's going to end in eternal bliss with Jesus in paradise forever. And the suffering that his enemies are going to endure for eternity, they're going to make these sufferings pale in comparison. That's what he's saying there. And so as we're filled with joy as we wait for the return of our Savior, how do we respond now? How does it, how does it change our day-to-day lives? How does this truth transform us as we go out the doors this morning and get ready for our work week on Monday morning? Well, the first thing is it changes our, our um, feelings of shame and disgrace for following Jesus and to giving glory to God. Look in verse 16 again. He says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. He's saying when you're insulted, when you're disgraced, when you're publicly humiliated because you follow Jesus, you might be tempted to hang your head in disgrace. You might be tempted to to try and hide away and be like, well, maybe I should keep this a little more low-key when I'm following Jesus. But commentator Karen Jobes puts it very well. This is how she kind of describes it. Peter wants his readers to understand themselves on very different terms. Listen to this. He provides an alternative way of calculating honor. Faith in Christ is nothing to be ashamed of, even when society says that it is. That's what Peter's telling us here. Now, what might this look like day to day? Most of us, if we go out of here, this, this is a very clean building. The walls are, are very clean in general. But if you go to some parts of the city or if you go into uh, your classrooms or if you go into the locker rooms or to the bathrooms, you'll see graffiti scrawled all over the walls and places. And sometimes it's, it's quite crude and very insulting. And in the ancient world, it, it was very similar, actually. If you go home this afternoon, you can look up online. There's a, a piece of ancient graffiti from the city of Rome that was created within a few hundred years after Jesus was, was um, crucified and then rose again. And in, the, in this picture, there's a picture of a young man, and his name is Alexamenos. And Alexamenos, he's facing a cross, and his, his hand is lifted up in praise and in worship. And if you follow the trajectory of where his hand is pointing, you'll see the object of his praise. There's a figure nailed to the cross, and it has the body of a man, but it has the head of a donkey. And underneath this picture are these mocking words, Alexamenos worships his God. Roman society mocked and ridiculed Christians because they worshiped a God who suffered the most humiliating form of execution. That was the point of of crucifixion. It was to hurt you and to give you the ultimate shame. So they mocked Alexamenos for, for worshiping his God, this donkey-headed freak. And students in here, all my students are in school, I want you all to pay close attention to this because I know that this is something that you can relate to. I know that in your schools, I know that on your sports teams, I know that in other areas of your lives, you've witnessed people being you know, completely humiliated and embarrassed, whether it's verbally or through pieces of graffiti like this. And I can imagine that as you're thinking about that, it's, it's terrifying. You might even feel a little bit of terror rising up in your own stomach as you think about, man, what would people say to me because I follow Jesus? What kind of humiliation and embarrassing, disgraceful remarks might I endure? For example, so-and-so won't party like we do, because they follow Jesus. How ridiculous. So-and-so 
thinks it's a good idea to love your enemies and forgive them. How stupid. So-and-so thinks that the nicest person I know actually needs a savior. They have these outdated, offensive, ethical principles. What a loser. And like Alexamenos, we, we might be tempted to kind of hang our heads when these things are said to us. And maybe mumble under our breath, no, nah, it's, it's not true. I don't, I don't believe those things. That might be how we're, how we're tempted. But if you, look at, if you go online, if you look at that piece of artwork, or we call it that, if you look at that graffiti, you'll see that next to it, Alexamenos might have been tempted to go up there and scratch his name out or maybe write, no, it, it's not true. I don't believe these things. But if you look at that picture right next to it, someone goes up, it was either him or his friend, and he writes, Alexamenos is faithful. Alexamenos is faithful. He's saying, I don't care if you mock me because you think my God is ridiculous because that's not who my God is. My God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords who's coming to judge the entire world before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and he is worthy of my continual praise even if you mock me because of it. And that's Peter's call to us this morning. Don't be ashamed, but glorify God. Now, as we, as we move into the final bit here, you know, we're probably all having a similar thought. You know, this sounds great on paper. It sounds good when we're in this nice, safe place of worship all together. But I got to tell you, Andrew, it's pretty brutal out there when the rubber meets the road. And others of us might be feeling a bit of despair because maybe you have experienced this mockery. And maybe you have actually said, no, I actually don't believe those things. I actually don't follow Jesus. Maybe you've denied him. And so you're hearing these words and you're wondering, so what's going to happen to me now? Because I failed. What happens now? And so our, our final time together, I want us to turn to the source of forgiveness for failures and the source of strength for those who falter in the midst of these trials. Look with me in verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter points to the power and nature of God as the source of our strength to endure suffering and give God glory in the midst of it. He calls God creator. And when he's saying creator, he's saying God is the ultimate power. He's the ultimate authority over all of these things. And he can bring you through these trials. He will bring you through these trials. And you want to know why? Because he's faithful. He always keeps his promises. He said he will be with you. He will, he will give you the strength to endure. He is faithful to us. And Peter knew this from his own personal experience. We're all familiar with the story on the night of Jesus' trial. People came up to Peter and said, you follow Jesus too, don't you? And Peter knew that if, if he said yes, that he was going to suffer. And so Peter said, no. <laughs> I, in fact, I don't only not follow Jesus, but I'm going to swear by all that I hold pure and holy I'm going to bring down a curse and an oath to show you just how much I'm saying, no, I don't follow Jesus. That was how Peter responded. Peter failed because he was going to suffer. But then something changed. If you have your Bible with you, flip over one page. 
Look in 2 Peter, in verse 13, chapter 1. This is what Peter said. We, we see a, a key change from saying, no, I swear I don't know him, to this. He says, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. See, as he's writing this second, this second letter, Peter's facing death. He's going to die because he's following Jesus. And how does he respond? He doesn't deny him anymore. Rather, he says, I'm going to follow him even if it means dying. And before I die, I want to encourage you to do the same thing. I want to stir you up to follow Jesus. What changed? Why the difference between this strong denial and this to-the-death commitment to Jesus? What happened to Peter? Peter was forgiven, and Peter was forever changed by Jesus because after he denied Jesus, Jesus went to the cross. Jesus suffered the ultimate form of suffering that anyone could imagine. And then Jesus died and rose again. You know what he did after he rose again? He went looking for Peter. In his grace, he, he sought Peter out, and he forgave him. He said, I forgive you, Peter. I know you fail me, and I forgive you. I want you to come follow me. But not only that, he didn't just forgive him, he also changed him. Because in the midst of that, he said, Peter, I want you to follow me, I forgive you, and you got to know something. You're going to die because you follow me. It's going to happen. I'm not going to sugarcoat it for you. But this is what's going to happen. But he gave Peter the strength to endure it. And we know that because we see the difference in Peter's words here where he says, I'm about to die, and I want to stir you up before I do it. And we know from history that, that he was strengthened by God. He was transformed by God. Because in our Christian tradition, Peter went to the cross and was executed as Jesus was, upside down. Peter was forgiven, and he was forever changed by God. He was able to entrust himself to his faithful creator by doing good, by continuing to follow Jesus, because he had been transformed by the grace of the gospel. And that's what's true for us as well. Like Peter, we can become children of God because of the gospel, because of what Jesus did for us. Like Jesus, when we fail, when we deny him because we're facing suffering, we can receive forgiveness. And like Peter, we can also be transformed, be people who don't deny Christ, but who rather entrust ourselves to him by his strength to follow him, even if it means we're disgraced today or ultimately killed tomorrow. And this is all because of what Jesus has done. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that even if we should lose our lives, that's not the end of the story. That whether you come back and bring us into glory before we die, or if we, we suffer persecution tomorrow or in 10 years or in 20 years, Lord, whatever may come down the road, even if we lose our lives, we will be with you for eternity. We can rejoice because we will share in your glory. Lord, thank you for that promise that you give us. Thank you for the hope that you hold out to us. And we pray now that you would give us the strength to follow you. You would help us to follow you even when it means we're going to suffer. Help us to trust you because you are our creator and you are faithful. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.